Okay, we're going to start here on the top of Zion Amud Aleph, nine lines down. Amar Rav Shmuel Bar Yehuda, Shalcholem Esther, HaChachamim. Esther sent to the Chachamim, Kivuni Dorot. Establish me as a holiday, establish this as a significant event for generations to come. Shalchula, they sent back to her, Wait a minute, that's not such a smart idea because because you're going to cause a certain amount of jealousy for us amongst the other nations. And the whole story is about a Jew rising to power within the Persian Median Empire, about the defeat of the enemies of the Jews. It's not something that's going to play well. Or most likely a problem of that when your enemies fall, you should not be rejoicing. So they would look on that unfavorably if we were celebrating in the downfall of our enemies. It's already in the secular history books. If it's already in the secular history books, this is widely known or is well known, and therefore there's no problem in us celebrating. It's not like you need to be afraid of the reaction of the other people because it's already something that's well documented. Rav, Virav Chenina, Virabi Yochanan, Virav Chaviva. Anytime you have these individuals together, Matnu Bikude Sedemoid, Koki Hagzuga, Chalufe Rabbi Yochanan, Ma'il Rabbi Yonatan. Anytime you have these individuals, these four grouped together in Seder Moed, then they take out Rabbi Yochanan and they replace it with Rabbi Yonatan. So again, we have another statement which is, Shochalahem Esther Chachamim, Kidvuni the Dorot. Write me down the Dorot. So here you have two requests. One request is Kivuni the Dorot, which is established Purim as a holiday. The second one is Kidvuni the Dorot, which means that Esther or Migilat Esther should become a part of the canon, a part of Tanakh. So that's a separate request from the Kivuni the Dorot. Now over here, Esther finds a little more difficulty with this because the Chachamim are going to be reluctant to add in another Sefer to the canon, add something into Tanakh. So she makes the request, Kidvun the Dorot, Shalchula, they responded to her, Hello, Katavti Lecha Shalishim. So this is a Pasuk that's found in Mishlei. It's taken out of context here. Even the word Shalishim, it's not clear what Shalishim means. But the Rishonim do bring an interpretation, which means like triplicate or in triple, or things come in threes. So they, for instance, Hello, Katavti Lecha Shalishim, uh, didn't you have a, my word comes to you and my advice comes to you in threes, Torah Nevi'im Uktuvim. Many of the Rishonim there interpret the word Shalishim to mean like Umivichar Shalishav, to mean officers and someone of a significant position. But the Gemara here is darshaning about Shalishim, Shalishim Velori Be'im, three times and not four times, meaning that there's only granted permission to document or record something three times. Until they found evidence in the Torah that in a sense, Esther was right in asking for the Migilat Esther to be canonized. Because it says in Pashat Bishalach, after the battle with Amalek, Moshe tells Yoshua to write down, Ketov Zot Zikaron Basefer. Write this down as a memory in the book. And the Gemara Darshan Ketov Zot, write it down, Mashikatuv Khan. That's the, what's recorded about the battle with Amalek in Pashat Bishalach. Ube Mishnah Torah as well as the requirements of Mechiat Amalek and Zechirat Amalek that is mentioned in Sefer Dvarim. 
So those two are captured by Ketov Zot. Zikaron is Mashakatuv Benivim. That's what's written in the Nevi'im, meaning the story of Shmuel and Shmuel Aleph and Agag, Melech Amalek, in the battle with the Shaul. Basefer is Mashakatuv Megillah. Basefer is the third instance of a battle with Amalek between Haman HaAgagi versus the Jews, Mordechai Yehudi, and that's written in the Megillah. And here we have the source for the ability to write down or canonize the story of Migilat Esther. So what's interesting here is that you have a transition, the Gemara between, the Gemara at first thought, you can't write it down. And then the Gemara changes its mind and says, no, you really can write it down. So again, what was the Havamina? And then what is the conclusion of the Gemara? There are different ways to view that transition from the beginning of the Gemara to the latter part of the Gemara. One of the possibilities is the way that the Pasuk is written. Alokatavti lecha shalishim is written in the past tense, which indicates that everything to be written has already been captured. Whereas Ketov Zod Zikaron Basefer implies that there's going to be, again, a future statement that's going to be made or a future recording of events that's going to take place. So that might be the one difference between what the Chameen thought at first, that everything was captured already, versus the possibility that something will be captured in the future. Another possibility is that in the beginning, the Gemara assumed that means what you can record it three times. So the original assumption about the recording it three times was it's written in the Torah twice, and it's written in the Navi in Shmuel Aleph once, so that's three times. Along comes the Pasuk and says, Kodov Zod Zikaron Basefer, which implies that there are three different manifestations of Tivat Mechiat Amalek, or battles with Amalek. And that means that we need a manifestation in Torah, manifestation in Navi, and manifestation in the Tuvim. So the Torah then becomes one unit. It's written once in the Torah, even though it's really written twice, because we already have the mention of battles with Amalek in the Torah. We have it mentioned in the Navi, we were missing the Tuvim. And that's when Megillat Esther comes to fill in. And that was the change from to the next statement of So that's the transition that the Chachamim went through in first rejecting Esther's request to be written down and then later accepting Esther's request to be canonized in place as part of Tanakh. Where it says, actually, this is actually a Machloket Tanaim as to whether Megillat Esther can be considered part of Tanakh or not. It says, Ketov Zot, Mashikatuv Khan. Ketov Zot means what's written here, meaning Parsha Bishalach. Zikaron, Mashikatuv Mishnah Torah. That's talking about what's written down in Parshat Kitetze, about Michiat Amalek. Basefer, Mashikatuv Benevim. That's what's written in Nevim in Shmuel Aleph, Divrei Rabbi Yeshua. So Rabbi Yeshua says the three manifestations of the writing down of battles with Amalek, or interactions between B'nai Israel and Amalek, that is already captured by the time you get to Shmuel Aleph. There's no more room left. On the other hand, Rabbi Lazar Modai Omer Tov Zot Mashikatuv Kan Ube Mishneh Torah that accounts both that which is in Pasha B'Shalach as well as what is in Sefer Tvarim. He counts them as one time. Zikaron Mashikatuv Benivim. That's what's mentioned in Sefer Shmuel. But Sefer Mashikatuv Megillah. But Sefer comes to tell you that Megillah Tester is part of the canon and will be included in the books of Tanakh. And we'll see here that that actually has a machloket or corollary to it, which is Amar of Yehuda Amar Shmuel, Esther ena mitama etayadaim. 
Esther is not considered to be a Kitvea Kodesh, and therefore it's not Mitamerate Yadaim. If you remember, we had this in the first parak in the Gemara and Shabbat, that there was a Zerat Chachamim with regards to Kitvea Kodesh, that if one touches the Kitvea Kodesh, that their hands become Tmeim, and they are Sheni Latuma, and they affect Truma. They will be Mitame Truma. The reason the Chachamim instituted this was because people were storing their Sifri Kodesh along with their Truma. Both of these items have a Dusha to them. Truma is Kadosh. It needs to be protected from Tuma. So it has to be segregated from your other food. It has to be segregated from other items so it does not make Habal Tuma. In addition, Kitvea Kodesh, which are special books and items that are Kodesh, you also want to put those aside and segregate them. So what do people do? They figured, I got Truma that's Kodesh. I have Kitvea Kodesh that are Kodesh. Let me store them together. Let me segregate them together. What ended up happening was that the food or the Truma was deteriorating and that was affecting the Kitvea Kodesh. Whether animals came along and they ate the produce that was there and then they also ate or ruined the Kitvea Kodesh or the fact that the fruits themselves or the grains themselves were deteriorating also caused problems for the Kitvea Kodesh to deteriorate. So in order to stop the practice of storing the Kitvea Kodesh along with the Truma, the Chamim instituted this Gzeira, which is your hands become Tmeim, a Sheni the Tuma, when you touch the Kitvea Kodesh. Well, if they're Sheni the Tuma, they will make Truma Psula, because they'll make a Shlishi the Tuma in Truma, and that will re- preclude you from engaging in the Truma. So then if you have the Kitvea Kodesh there and you touch them, then you can't engage with the Truma. So it was a way to stop people from putting the Kitvea Kodesh together with the Truma. So if you have a statement here, Amar of Yudam Ashmol, Esther Yadaim, that statement indicates that he doesn't believe it's one of the Kitvea Kodesh. Because the Gzerat Chachamim is that the Kitvea Kodesh are Mitamata Yadaim. The fact that he says it's not means that he believes it's not one of the Kitvea Kodesh. The memory of the Savar Shmol, Esther Laberuach Kodesh Nemra, are you implying from this that the book of Esther was simply a historical recount of the story of Esther and Mordechai, and not that it was written in Beruach HaKodesh, it was not divinely inspired? Vamar Shmuel, Esther Beruach HaKodesh Nemra. That Esther was written with a divine inspiration, and we'll see what Shmuel says later on. So Gemara says, Nemra likrot velo Nemra likhtov. It was said, Beruach HaKodesh, in order to read it. But it was not said, Lichtov, to write it down. Now, that's a hard distinction. It could be the distinction, obviously, between Torah Shebaalpeh and Torah Shebaalpeh. By Torah Shebaalpeh, you can write it down, and it's recorded, and you learn it from Mitoch HaKtav, whereas Torah Shebaalpeh, in its true sense, not like the way we learn it today, is that it's learned by heart and passed down in the Mitzvah. It's not written down. But over here, when you're talking about Kriyata Megillah, we have numerous Tanaim coming up, as well as Amoraim, and a Mishnah Mifureshet that says that you have to read it, Mitochaktav, that you read it out of the written word. So how could Shmuel over here, who's an Amora, come along and say, yeah, you know what, you have to read the Megillah, you just don't have to have it written down. We have so many statements and so much evidence that's not the case. How does Shmuel argue on that? So Tosafot is playing around trying to figure out what that means. And then in the end, he says that the writing down of the Megillah is done in a way that makes it the Kitvea Kodesh. The requirements of Stam 
that, first of all, done on cloth, the fact that you're required to be stitched with gidim, and the fact that you might need sirtut, you might need lines in order to write it, all of those items are a requirement if it's mandated to be written down in such a manner. It could be, and that may be the way the halacha is, that you can write it down, and you have to read a mitoch haktav, but you can read it out of a printed book, you can read it out of a chomish, you don't have to read it out of a migilah, kwa migilah. And that might be the difference here, that even Shmuel agrees you have to read a mitoch haktav. The question is, what type of tav do you need? So he's saying you don't need all the trappings of a tav of Ketit Kodesh. You might have to read a mitoch haktav, but that's different, because it's not really like the tav of Ketit Kodesh, those that are of the Tanakh. All right, I mean, the difference that you're noting is not a difference between Megillah and other Ketit Kodesh. It's a difference between Torah and anything else in Tanakh. I mean, that. Torah has its own unique set of restrictions and rules that are unique to Torah that doesn't necessarily apply to the rest of Nach. It's not just Megillah Tester. The truth is that you really only know it by Megillah Tester because that's the only time you see another thing read from the cloth. But if you read the Haftorah from the cloth, if you have Nevi'im from the cloth, or you read the other Megillot from the cloth, they have all the same dinim as Megillah Tester. So it's not a difference between Megillah and other Sifri Kodesh. It's a difference between all Sifri Kodesh Versus the Torah. So now, Rabbi Meir Omer, Kohelet So anytime somebody says this, that's a code word for the fact that it's not part of Kitvei Kodesh. Kohelet is not metamei yadaim, means he thinks it's not part of Tanakh. Umachloket b'shira shirim. And with shira shirim, it's a machloket whether it's part of Kitvei Kodesh or not. I mean, he's saying it's a machloket whether it's metamei yadaim, but again, that's equivalent to saying whether it's part of Tanakh or not. Rabbi Yose Omer, Shira Shirim et Tamei Shira Shirim is for sure part of Tanakh. Umachloket be Kohelet. On the other hand, there's a machloket by Kohelet as to whether it is part of the Kitvei Kodesh. Right. So Rabbi Shimon Omer, Kohelet mikule Beit Shemai umichumrei Beit Hillel. Kohelet is a machloket between Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel. It turns out to be a kula by Beit Shemai and a chumra by Beit Hillel. Meaning, if he's talking about mitame yadaim, then Beit Shemai say it's not mitame yadaim which also means it's not Kitvei HaKodesh. And Beidela says it is Mitame Yedayim, which means it is part of Kitvei HaKodesh. Aval, Rut, Vishira Shirim, Ve'ester, Mitamim, Eta Yedayim. When it comes to Rut, Shira Shirim, and Esther, everybody agrees that that's Mitame Eta Yedayim, meaning those are Tebadai Kitvei HaKodesh. So the problem is, Shmuel just said before, that it doesn't have a din of Kitvei HaKodesh. Yet over here, we have an explicit Mishnah that tells us that it is the case, that it is Mitame Eta Yedayim. Mean that everybody agrees in the Mishnah in Yadayim and the Mishnah in Ediot that it is Metameyata Yadayim. And if that's the case, then how can Shmuel argue on an explicit Mishnah? It says, no problem. We have a Tana who says like that. We have a Tana of Rabbi Yoshua, we saw before, who says that it's not part of Kitvea Kodesh. He says that Ketov Zot, the Quran Besefer, was already used up before we got to Megillah Tester, and therefore Megillah Tester doesn't count as one of the Kitvea Kodesh, and Shmuel is following that position of Rabbi Yoshua. So it's a machloket tanaim in the end, as to whether Megillah is considered to be part of the Kitvei HaKodesh or not. Rabbi Yoshua says no. And Rabbi Elazar Amodai says that it is part of Kitvei HaKodesh. Over here as well, we have a number of other items that are mentioned that were besafek, and that is Kohelet and Shir Shirim that were also questionable as whether they were part of the canon or not. So now Tanya. Rabbi Shimon Bemenasi Omer, Kohelet, Enu Metameta Yadaim, Vineshachmato, Shal Shlomohi. 
So here he says, the reason Kohelet is not included in the canon is because it's a book of wisdom. It's not a book of God. And so is the wisdom of Shlomo that is recorded here and therefore doesn't have a din of Kitve HaKodesh. Amru they said to Rabbi Shimon ben Asi, v'chi amar? This is all that Shlomo Melech said. Hello, kvar ne'amar? Doesn't it say imelachim when it's describing the tremendous chokhmah of Shlomo Melech? One of the things that's mentioned there is ve'ideber shloshet alafim mashal. He had 3,000 mashalim that he had. Vilmer, and it also says in the Pasuk Mishlei, al tosp al devarav. May one, man, one may not add on to the words that are mentioned here. My Vilmer, what does Vilmer mean? Chitema me martuva amar, that he said many more than this. Dibai yichtav, vidibai lo yichtav. If you want to write him down, you can write him down. You don't want to write him down, you don't have to write him down. Tashma al tosp al devarav. May not add on anything to his words. What the Gemara is indicating through here is that the fact that Kohelet does not incorporate everything that Shlomo knew, because it says in Melachim that he knew 3,000 Mishalim, the fact that Mishlei, Kohelet, do not record all of the items that Shlomo Amelech knew or had in his wisdom, that indicates that whatever is written down is definitely done by Ruach HaKodesh. And that's why it was chosen to be written down, because it's a selection from amongst what Shlomo Melech had in his wisdom, or that he had created in his wisdom. And the ones that are recorded in the Kitveh Kodesh are Kodesh because of that, by the fact, or the mere fact, that they were chosen to be written down. It's very similar to the way that one has to view Navi. In the Nevi'im, we have recordings of Nivu'ot, or stories throughout history, but the Navi, in many instances, misses important historical facts, or important historical events that are transpiring in tandem with whatever's going on with the Navi. And sometimes the Navi brings us a Nivuah, but there were other Nivuot that were not recorded. So what we have in the Navi was recorded because it has relevance to the Dorot. It has relevance not just in its period, but also for future generations. In addition to that, it was chosen as a nouveau that was not just to be conveyed to that generation or orally, but a nouveau that was to be written down in order to be utilized or seen, the dorot. So the same thing over here. The fact that the recording of the Mashalim or the recording of the wisdom of Kohelet is only a portion of that which was a part of Shlomo Melech's repertoire, that indicates that those items were Kodesh or those were chosen because they belonged in the Kitvei HaKodesh. So that's what the Gemara wants to prove from this fact that it wasn't just the wisdom of Shlomo, but it was a chosen piece of the wisdom of Shlomo, that which was either Beruach HaKodesh, or that which Hashem incorporated into Kitvei HaKodesh. So now, the Gemara comes back and says, we said before that Esther Beruach HaKodesh Nemra. That Esther was written with divine inspiration. That was the statement of Shmuel. Even though he thinks it's not required to be written down, nevertheless, he does say that it was written in Beruach HaKodesh. So now the Gemara wants to prove, how do you know that Miglat Esther was written with divine inspiration? So now you have a number of Tanaim here. Tanya, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Esther Beruach HaKodesh Nemra, it was divinely inspired. Shnemar, Vayomer Haman Bilibo. Because it says in the Miglat that Haman said in his heart, well, how does the Megillah know what Haman said in his heart? The fact that it's recording what Haman said in his heart must mean that it is divinely inspired. Rabbi Kiva Omer, Esther Ruach HaKodesh Nemrash Nemar, 
It says that Esther found favor in the eyes of anyone who saw her. Again, this is a fact that no one could ascertain. How does the person who's writing the Megillah have that type of information? The only way they have that type of information is if they have Ruach HaKodesh. Mordechai found out about the plan of Bigtan Viteresh. Well, how did he find out about it? He must have found out of it because he had a Ruach HaKodesh. Rabbi Yossi ben Durmaskit says, Esther Beruach HaKodesh Nemra Shnemar. The Pasuk towards the end of the Megillah says, When the Jews are given the right to defend themselves against their enemies, they do not take any of the booty. They simply kill their enemies and leave their possessions behind. So again, when the Megillah records, How could they record that? You're talking about a vast empire. How do they have the information or the knowledge to make such a statement? The only way they could have that is if they had Ruach HaKodesh. Now, Amar Shmuel, If I was there in this Machloket Tanaim, I would have said something better than all of these Tanaim here. Shinamar, because the Pasuk says in Megillah, Kimu v'kiblu. Kimu l'mala, mashikiblu l'mato. They established above, or they accepted above, meaning Shamayim, mashikiblu l'mato, what was accepted or practiced down below. So the establishment of Purim was affirmed in Shamayim. That affirmation in Shamayim gives credence, or gives a stamp of approval from Shamayim that this is a book of the canon, this is Kitvei HaKodesh. So Amarovo, the Kulu, Itluhu Pircha, the Bar Mishmuel. All of these proofs that were brought here by the Tanaim can be undermined, can be refuted, except for that of Shmuel, the Lele Pircha. The statement of Shmuel has no refutation, it is the best proof that it was written by Ruach HaKodesh. This is also mentioned with regards to Pikuach Nefesh, that's Dochesh Shabbat, or Pikuach Nefesh, overrides all the mitzvot of the Torah. The same thing happens over there. There's a list of reasons given, and then Shmuel says a reason, and all of the others are taken out. All the other Tanaim are taken out, and Shmuel's reason stands in the end. So similar type of statement that's been cross-referenced over here. You can see that in the Mesorah Tashas. But here again, Shmuel's answer has more strength than all the other answers. So now the Gemara explain what's the problem with each of the answers. The Rabbi Leezer, Svaruhu, Telohava Inish, Techashiv, the Malka, Kavate. So when it says, Vayomer Haman Bili Bo, so how does the Bala Migilah know what Haman said in his heart? So the answer could be, Svaruhu, it was logical. There was no one more important or higher ranking in the Malchut besides him. Vahai ki kamafish tuva ve'amar adati nafshei kamar. So from the statements of Haman afterwards, which is when the king queries him to ask him what should he do to someone who the king wants to reward and who the king has found favor in his eyes, what do you do? And Haman gives us a description of what you do. So what the Bala Megillah did was he was able to extrapolate or surmise both from the statements of Haman as well as the objective fact that Haman is the highest ranking official in the government. And then he says, Vayomer Haman Bilibo, he fills in the missing piece of the story when he says, He does it on his own, of his own volition. So it could be a story that includes not that he knew for certain what Haman had said in his heart, but he surmises what he said in his heart based on the context that we have of the story. 
De Rabbi Akiva, how do we undermine the proof of Rabbi Akiva? Dilma ke Rabbi Elazar. Maybe it'll be like Rabbi Elazar, Damar, Malamech, Kolechad, Vechad, Nidmita, Lo, Kumato. Why did Esther find favor in everyone's eyes? Because every nation thought that she was from them. Remember, she does not disclose her nationality. And by not disclosing her nationality, everybody claims her for themselves. So that's what it means, no Seit Chain. She was claimed by all nationalities because she never disclosed her nationality. And that's what that Pasuk means. Not that it's a statement that everybody who saw Esther was captivated by her. Rabbi Meir, how do we undermine or refute the proof that Rabbi Meir brought that this was Baruch HaKodesh? Dilma ki Rabbi Chia Ba'abo. davar de Mordechai. How did Mordechai find out about it? Damar, this is in the Agarata that we'll see it coming up in the first parak with regards to Migalah, which is Bigtan Viteresh Nei Tarsiim Hayu. Bigtan and Teresh were two people from Tarshish, and therefore they spoke a language that nobody else understood. But Mordechai understood the language. Here the Gemara is going to say in the Gadata, because he was part of the Sanhedrin, he was familiar with the 70 languages, and that's how he understood what they were planning and was able to disclose the information to Echashverosh, not because he got it bin Nivuah, not because he got it bin Ruach HaKodesh. V'had Rabbi Yossi ben Durmaskit, how do they know all the information about Ubizalo Shochuot Yodam? Dilma Pristigei Shadur, maybe messengers were sent back, and that the Jews, after they defended themselves, and they were celebrating Purim, they sent messengers back to Mordechai to affirm that they had done what Mordechai had asked, first of all, to defend themselves against their enemies, and number two is, they sent back messengers to let him know that they had, that had t- transpired, and that's how they knew that information. But Shmuel's proof has nothing to refute it or undermine it, even though Tosafot says, wait a minute, we use that for the statement of Rabbah, that's Mikan Moda Rabbah Doraito. From here, it's a big claim against our acceptance of the Torah or obligation to keep the Torah. Because it says that, may put it over them, Gahar Kigigit. Hashem held a mountain over the Jews and said, either you accept the Torah, otherwise Shem take Vuratchem, otherwise you're going to be buried here. So then, what type of acceptance of the Torah is it? That was, we were coerced. We were forced to accept the Torah. The answer is, that in the time of Mordechai Vester, Kimuvi Kiblu Ayudim. The Jews accepted willingly at that time the Torah upon themselves. And therefore, there's no longer this claim that we didn't willingly accept it because we had a reaffirmation in the time of Mordechai and Esther, Kimu Vikiblu, Kimu Mashikiblu Kvar. They accepted something that they already accepted beforehand, and that is the Matan Torah. So Tosvat says, if that's the Limud from this Pasuk, then that's a Pircha for Shmuel, because Shmuel then doesn't have the Pasuk available to make his Limud. So in the end, Tosvat says, first of all, that's not a good answer, because we can learn two things out of this. And number two is, it doesn't undermine it from a logical standpoint. It might undermine it from the fact that I need the words, or I need this pasuk to teach me something else. But from a logical standpoint, it also does not refute or undermine the position of Shmuel. And that's why Shmuel's answer is the one that doesn't have any problem with it. Amar Ravina, or there's another Girsa, which is Amar Rova. Ainu da this is what people say. This is an expression, a colloquialism amongst the people. Tava chada pilpuda harifta. It's better to have one sharp, hot chili pepper. Than to have a basket full of gourds or plain gourds. 
So basically, one hot pepper does a lot, has a big impact. It can flavor many things. It can have a much sharper result than a whole basket full of nobodies or a whole basket full of just plain people or gourds in this case. Yosef Amar the proof to the fact that Megillat Esther's written in Beruach HaKadosh comes from this, because it says, These days of Purim will never be lost from the Jews. How can you make a futuristic statement like that, a definitive statement like that, unless you have Ruach HaKadosh? That their memory will be never lost from their descendants again. That's a statement about the future, a definitive statement about the future, which one can't make unless they have Ruach HaKadosh. Okay, now the Gemara moves on to describing Mishloach Manot, Manatanot Le'Evyonim, and the Sudad Purim. And over here, it's basically by case law, we have stories about the Amoraim, and through those stories, we learn out the Dinim of Mishloach Manot and Matanot Le'Evyonim, and even the Suda. Tani Rav Yosef, O Mishloach Manot Ish L'Reyehu. From the fact that in the Megillah it says that you do Mishloach Manot Ish L'Reyehu, Shtei Manot Le'Ishachad. Because the Mishloach Manot, Manot is written in the plural, Whereas Ish L'Reyehu is written in the singular. I say, Taner of Yosef. Umishloach Manot Ish L'Reyehu. Shte Manot Ish Echad. From there we learn that you have to give two gifts to a single individual. That comes from the fact that it says Umishloach Manot. Manot is written in the plural form. So that means two Manot. Ish is in the singular form. Ish L'Reyehu. One to another. So therefore you have to give two Manot Ish Echad. To Mikayim the Mitzvah Umishloach Manot. Umatanot Le'Evyonim. And gives to the Evyonim, Shte Matanot, the Shnei Bnei Adam. Here, Matanot is written in plural, and Evyonim is written in plural. So you could read this one of two ways. And as Rashi notes, that Matanot Evyonim, you could read it that you have to give two gifts to two different Evyonim. That's not the way that Rav Yosef reads it. He reads it rather that you have to give two gifts, one to each Evyon. So you have two gifts, and you also have two Evyonim. But then when you give, you give one gift to each Evyon. And that's how we learn out, or that's the din, or the mitzvah of Matanot Levyonim, which is to give two gifts to two different people. Rabbi Yehuda Nisiya, Rabbi Yehuda Nisiya is the Amora, Rabbi Yehuda is the grandson of Rabbi, Shodalei the Rabbi Oshaya, he sent to Rabbi Oshaya on Purim, Atmo de Igla Tilta Vigarbo Duchamro, send him over a leg or a thigh of an Igla Tilta, Rashi over here says Igla Tilta is Shlishi the Betten, it's the third one born to its mother, Rashi, other places in Shah says that's not the right way to explain it, and that's not what tilta means. Tilta means that it's a third of its maturity. Regarva de Chamra means a barrel of wine. So he sent these over to Rabbi Oshayo. Shalach Lei, Rabbi Oshayo sends back to Rabbi Yehuda Nisiyah, Kayamto Banu Rabbeinu Mishloach Manot Ishtereehu. So we'll just go through here. There is a major machloket as to what the girsah here is in the Gemara. Most, like Rashi, have a girsa that it is, meaning referring to Rabbi Yudha Nisiya, you were Mikhaim by sending this over, Mishloach Manot, Ishlereyu. That was your Mishloach Manot. You accomplished Mishloach Manot. There's another girsa that the Rabbeinu Hanano brings, and it actually changes the whole story. There's also a third girsa, which is what's found in our Gemara, which is Mishloach Manot, Ishlereyu, Umatanot Levyonim. You were Yotse both Mishloach Manot and Matanot Levyonim. Let's read the Girsa in the Rabbeinu Hananel, and after that, we'll talk a little bit about the differences between these different formulations. So in the Rabbeinu Hananel, it says, Rabbi Yehuda Nisiyah Shalach the Rabbi Oshaya, Yerach Shel Egel, Shlishi the Betten, Vekankan Yayin, 
what's described here in our Gemara. Shalach Lei, Rabbi Shaya sends back to Rabbi Yudin Nesiyah, Kiyamta Banu, Rabbeinu Matanot Le'avyonim. He says that the Gersa reads that you were Mekayim Matanot Le'avyonim. Then, Klomar, Netinat Evyonim Natatali, you gave me something that's only good enough for an Evyon. Manachat, Biya Yerach. You only gave me one portion, which is the Yerach. Chazar, Shalach Lo Egel, Begimel Kanke Yayin. Afterwards, he sent him back an Egel, in three barrels of wine. And the way the Gemara continues, the way that that finishes off is, now you're Mekayim Mishloach Manot, Ishtereyehu. So that's the Girsa of the Revenu Hananel. Now all of this has impact on the way that we view Mishloach Manot and Matanot Yonim. Because over here, the question of what happened or what transpired. If you believe that through this he was Mekayim the Mitzvah Mishloach Manot, Alright, that makes sense. It's a pretty simple reading of the Gemara. And if you say you're Mekayim Mishloach Manot to he sent him Shtei Manot, Le'ishachad, and he was Mekayim Mishloach Manot. So this is just a case study or an example of that which we just said before, that Mishloach Manot Ish says that you can send two Manot Le'Reihu. In addition to that, it would also bring you to the conclusion that wine is considered to be a mana. That's, you can have drink as well as food count towards the Mishloach Manot. And it also will teach us something we'll see in one second about the nature of Mishloach Manot. On the other hand, if you have the Girsa of the Gemara that we have in front of us, which is Mishloach Manot Ishtereu Umatanot Evyonim, that means, or what you learn from this Gemara is that you can actually accomplish both mitzvot in one shot. If you give your Mishloach Manot to an Ani or to an Evyon, not only have you been Mekayim Mishloch Manot, you're also Mekayim Matanot Evyonim. You do not need to separate out the mitzvot. That would be the nafkamir. That would be what you learn out of the fact that your Yotzi both Mishloch Manot and Matanot Evyonim, according to the Girsa that's actually found in Argimaras, although it's eliminated both by the Bach, the Gra, and many of the Rishonim. The Rabbeinu Hananel's Girsa, on the other hand, says that when he sent them all the food, he says, you're only Yotzi be Matanot Evyonim. Then he sends them more food, and he says, now you're Yotzi Mishloch Manot. The question is why. The difference of opinion as to why in the Gears of the in the first case he says you're only Yotze Matanot they have your name. In the second case he was Yotze Mishloach Manot. So some say that what Rabbi Oshai was saying back to me is that you only gave me a Klomar Nitiat Evyonim Natatali. You gave me something that was less than your stature. Rabbi Huda the Nasi. If you don't give something significant, that's not considered to be Mishloach Manot. Yeah, you sent me somebody, I'm Rabbi Shai, I'm poor. So when you send me over this gift, you accomplish Matanot Yonim. As far as Mishloach Manot Ishtereyo, that you did not accomplish because you did not send something that was matching your stat- stature. You did not send something that was significant enough to be counted as Mishloach Manot. So then what does he do afterwards? He sends them more stuff. He ends up sending him three barrels of wine and an egel. So he increases the amount that he sent him, and then he says, ah, now you're Yotze Mishloach Manot. Because now you give something that was appropriate for your stature, appropriate for your position. Now, you could come up with different afkaminot, even from the Girsa of the Rebbeinu Hananel. For instance, why did he have to send him a second time the Mishloach Manot? So one way to read it is like we said here, was beneath his dignity. And therefore he has to send again in order to raise the Mishloach Manot to the level where it was a dignified gift. The other possibility is that he gave him Yayin. And that was the problem. He gave him yain in the first case, he gave him drink. Only food counts, drinks don't count. So then he gave him again. When he gave him again, he gave him food, and he gave him yain again. The yain again doesn't matter, but he gave him an eagle again. 
And even though he gave him two of the same item, since he gave him two manot, that's enough to be called mishlach manot. So that's one way to learn it, that the problem was that he was using yayin, and yayin does not suffice for mishlach manot, ish l'reyehu. This leads us to a very basic question in mishlach manot, which is, what is the purpose of mishlach manot? And this again, we'll have menachemina in the upcoming Gemara. What is the mitzvah mishlach manot? Generally, when we talk about Yom Tov, we mentioned this in the daf two days ago, that Mishloach Manot is a practice that's not unique to Purim. It happens on all of the Yamim Tovim. That we saw in the Gemara Beitzah from the Pasuk Nechemia with the words to Rosh Hashanah, Mishloach Manot, that you send gifts over to those that are less fortunate. So there is this idea of giving gifts, and there is this idea of Mishloach Manot on all the holidays. The problem here in Purim is that you already have Matanot Lev Yonim. Matanot Lev Yonim already captures what you would do in terms of Mishloach Manot on any other given Yom Tov. So then, on Purim, what is Mishloach Manot? If it's not the Matanot Lev Yonim, if it's not supporting the poor, then what exactly is Mishloach Manot? So there are two possibilities about what the purpose of Mishloach Manot is. One possibility is that Mishloach Manot is a way for you to help a person make a suda. The Mishloach Manot is, how do we marbeb suda? Because people give us items to increase the level of Mishteh v'simcha. And through that, we'll enhance the Simchat HaPurim. So the point of Mishlach Manot is basically to help facilitate or engender a beautiful Suda and a Suda that is full and a Mishteh v'simcha. That's one possibility. The other possibility of what Mishlach Manot Israel is, is that it's done in order to increase the Avo, the Achvo, the unity amongst Klal Yisrael, it's to make it into a day of Achdut, unification. And again, we mentioned this with regards to Yom HaKippurim, in the Musa for Yom HaKippurim, that's how the day of Yom HaKippurim is described. It's day is Yom, Yom, Yom Slicha, Yom Mechila, Yom. And there it says that a day where there's Ein Kina, Ein Tachara, there's no jealousy, there's no fighting, where there's Ava vereyut, love and friendship between all peoples. And the same thing here. If you want to facilitate that on Purim, how do we do that? We give Mishlach Manot. So Mishlach Manot is a way to engender good feeling or goodwill between people and to create a certain amount of achtut amongst Klal Yisrael. So now, if you view Mishlach Manot in those two ways, that has many nafkaminot lalacha. Let's talk about one of them. First of all, the items that you give in the Mishlach Manot, do they have to be ra'oi to be eaten at the suda? Well, if the point of the Mishloch Manot is that they be used in the Suda, if you send over milk or chocolate products that you can't eat at the meal because you're having a fleshik Suda, then you're not Yotze Mishloch Manot because you gave something that can't be utilized at the Suda. On the other hand, if you think Mishloch Manot is just to engender goodwill, then it doesn't matter if it's something that can be used in the Suda or not. It's all about the gift that matters. Number two is the Mishloch Manot. What is the purpose of the Mishloch Manot? That might have an afkamina to what we just read in the Gemara. The Mishloach Manot, when we look at what's called Mishloach Manot, or what's the proper mana to give in Mishloach Manot, is it dependent on the recipient, or is it dependent on the giver of the Mishloach Manot? Well, that might have to do with whether it's for the Suda, or it's to engender goodwill. If it's for the Suda, then it really should be determined by the recipient of the Mishloach Manot. Whatever his Suda is going to be like, then what you give is something that would be appropriate for his suda. On the other hand, if the purpose of Mishloch Manot is to engender goodwill, then it might have to do with the stature of the giver. 
The giver has to give something that's significant from him because that shows that he cares. That shows that he's trying to impress you. He's trying to engender goodwill. So then it would be determined by the person's giving. That's basically what we said before in the, in the Gears of the Rebbeinu Hananel, that he might have said that you're not Yotze Mishlach Manot because it's beneath your dignity. You gave something that was Matanot Evyonim, but for you to give something, it has to be something that's significant to you to be counted as Mishlach Manot. So Rabbi Shayo, according to that view, is saying that Mishlach Manot is about engendering that goodwill. One of the Nafkaminot between those two might have to do with Rav Scheinberg writes this in his Sefer, if what happens if the recipient rejects the Mishloach Manot? He says, oh, thank you so much. It's so kind. I appreciate that you made the effort, but really, I don't want to take it. Well, that may make a difference in how you view the purpose of Mishloach Manot. If the purpose of Mishloach Manot is for the Suda, and the person doesn't take it for the Suda, then you haven't accomplished Mishloach Manot. On the other hand, if the point of Mishloach Manot is to engender goodwill, then the person got your goodwill. He knows you wanted to give it. He doesn't need to receive it. He doesn't need to have it. It needs to know that you tried or that you wanted to give it, and that's enough to engender the goodwill. So again, that has these all have nafkaminot and how we view the mishloach manot ishlereyo, and lahalocha we are generally machmir that people should give mishloach manot that can be utilized at the suda. Now, since mishloach manot ishlereyo only requires you give one person two items and everything else is bonus, then the truth is that you should give one piece of Mishloach Manot that can be used at the Suda that involves probably something, maybe something that's fleshik, something that can be part of the Suda, maybe even two food items, not just a drink. And then the rest of the Mishloach Manot that you're giving is to engender goodwill because you already accomplished the core mitzvah if it's to go to a Suda. So the remainder of the Mishloach Manot, you can give whatever you want in them because obviously you believe that it's to engender goodwill and therefore you can include anything else. So that is in terms of the halacha of Mishloach Manot. In addition to that, can you accomplish through Mishloch Manot, Matanot Evyonim, again, might have to do with this Nafkamino. If Mishloch Manot is there to engender goodwill, then maybe you cannot accomplish Matanot Evyonim with it. On the other hand, if it's to be a part of the Suda, and that he eats it as part of Suda on the Yom Apurim, then it might accomplish Matanot Evyonim, because that's the point of Matanot Evyonim, is to ensure that the Evyon can have a Simcha and a Mishta like you have, so that he has what you have on Purim. Right, so that's just some a little view of Mishloach Manot Ishlere Ehu. There is also one other thing which is Mishloach. So people will be Machmir or Machpid to send one of the Mishloach Manot Derech Ashliach, because it says Mishloach, to do it through a third party. And that might again, the reason you would say that is probably or likely because you think it's to engender goodwill. So by including more people in the mitzvah, it increases the goodwill that is generated in the process. Now, the Gemara continues here. Rabbo Shadrle the Mari Barmar Abai is a Talmud of Rabbo. He's also an adopted son of Rabbo. So Rabba sent to Mari Barmar through Abaye. Melo Tasko de Kasva. He sent him a basket or a sack full of dates. Malikasa Kimtcha Dabshuna. And then a cup full of flour that came from roasted kernels. Milled roasted kernels. Amalei Abai, Abai says to Rabbo, Hashtamar Mari, this is what Mari is going to say, Ichakla Malka, Lahavitikula Mitzavere Lonochit. He says, if the farmer becomes the king, the basket that he carries around, is he not going to take it down from his neck? He's saying basically to Rabbo, is that your position in life has changed. 
You used to be just a regular person, but now you've been appointed to Rosh Hashiva. So you can't keep sending what you sent in the past. When you sent something in the past, that was okay for Rabbah. But now that you're the Rosh Hashiva, you're a person of stature, sending this is not appropriate. It's not a flexion of your current status. And so, what he's, so the mashal that he gives is that if the farmer became the king, does he still carry around his basket that he had as a farmer? No, he's going to put it down. So, again, here you see a view that the sender has a big impact on the Mishloach Manot or the gauge of what type of Mishloach Manot you should send. Then, Shadalei Ihu, on the way back, Abai brought from Mari Marmar to Rabbah these items. Melo Tasko de Zangvila, sent them a basket or a sack full of ginger. Melo Kasa de Pilputa Arika, and he sent them a cup full of long peppers or probably hot peppers. Amar Abai, he says, Abai says now to Mari Barmar, Hashtam Amar, Rab is going to say, Ana Shadrile Chulia, I sent him sweet items, Vihu Shadrile Chulfa, and he's sending me back these hot items. So he's sending me spicy stuff, and I sent him sweet stuff. So in each case, Abai was trying to give instruction to the sender to do a better job. Doesn't sound like they listened to him, we don't have any evidence of what happened, but it sounds like they sent it anyway. Now, Amar Abai, Abai now tells this story about Kinakrim Mar. When I used to leave the house of Mar, when Abai says Mar in general, it refers to Rabba. Occasionally it refers to Rabbi Yosef, who were both Rabbeim of Abai. But generally when Abai says Mar, it means Rabba. Because when I used to leave the house of Rabba, have a savano. I felt full, I felt satisfied. Kimate the Hatom, when I reached the house of Mari Barmar, Karivuli Shitin Sai the Shitin Minek Deira. They used to bring in front of me 60 plates or 60 bowls full of 60 different dishes. Vachli beho shitin pluge. I would eat uh six. I would eat sixty portions of them. Ubishula batraita havukarile, and the last thing that they served was called slikedar. Uboi the mikas tsa abatra. And after I finished that last dish, I was so hungry I wanted to eat the plate. So now, why was Abai so hungry? So Amar Abai, I knew damri inche kafin ania vloyado. A poor person is so hungry, they don't really know the extent of their hunger. First of all, Abaye was poor. He was orphaned when he was very young. Rabba, who adopted him, is also very poor. And so when he lived by Rabba, he ate very little. All of a sudden, he gets to the house of Mari Barmar, who was a much more wealthy individual. And he's presented with all this food. So he eats and eats and eats and eats. And he says, oh my gosh, I never realized how hungry I was because I never expected more. I never had the opportunity to eat more. All of a sudden I was presented with the opportunity. I never ex- I never understood the amount of hunger that I ha- had. Inami. This is one of uh, the favorite lines here. Rav Chodabesima Shriach. There's always room for dessert. There's always room for something sweet. The implications are if something is appealing to you and something is enjoyable, the person always finds room for that item. That's what Abai was saying here. The great dishes or the wonderful things they gave him at Mari Barmar's house, they got him excited. And when he got excited, there was room for it. Again, there's always room for something sweet, something for dessert. And now, uh, that's just a little side story that relates to that exchange between Rabo and Mari Barmar when they, ex- they sent Mishloach Manot Ishtarehu. And Abai describes the difference between the two individuals. He describes the difference between Rabo, who was poor, and Mari Barmar, who was wealthy, about how he was eating very little in the house of Rabbo and eating a lot when he reached the house of Mari Barmar. Now, Abaye 
Bar Avin, Rabbi Hanina Bar Avin. So these are two brothers. They exchanged their meals one to the other. That's all the information we have, that they exchanged their meals. What does that do? How does that help? No information here. Rashi says something even more unusual. He says, They came over to each other's houses. On this Purim, he invited his brother over and he ate by him. The next Purim, they switched and they went to the other brother. So each year, one of them would host. That's what Rashi says. What's the Nafkamina Locha? Not clear from here that there is any Nafkamina from Rashi. There are those that want to suggest that the Nafkamina Locha is something that the Mishnah Bura mentions, the Locha, is that you're not allowed to have your Sudat Purim alone. The requirement of Simcha by Sudat Purim must be done in company, must be done with others. And therefore it's not classified as a Sudat Purim if you eat alone in the Sudat Purim. So the reason they ate together each year is because they need to eat together in order to have a Sudat Purim that classified it as Simcha. That's one possibility out of Rashi's statement. The other possibility about Rashi's statement is that they went to each other in each year. This Purim he went to his brother, and the next Purim he went to his other brother. Even though they were brothers, number one, and they were Somech al Shulchan and they were dependent on their father for their food or their meals. So despite the fact that they were getting their food or getting their Parnosa from their father, they were allowed to invite each other over, they were allowed to donate their portion to each other in order to eat. Even though normally you're not allowed to do that, when the Baal gives you something, it's for you, and you're not allowed to give it to others, because otherwise the Baal would have given it. He didn't ask you to distribute it, he distributed it to you, because he wants you to have it. So you would have thought, maybe over here it's the same thing. The answer is that they were brothers, and therefore he wouldn't be mocked on the fact that they went to each other, they shared the portion that was given to each other. That's because of Rashi. Everybody else, the Marshal says, if it wasn't for Rashi, I would explain it this way. The Ran brings down this alternative explanation as well, which is, not that it was in a different year, like Rashi says, but on the same year, they swapped out their Su'udot. They were too poor to be able to give Mishloach Manot and to have a Su'uda. So what they ended up doing was, was they swapped meals. They had a Su'uda. And he made a suda, and then they swapped their suudot. By swapping their suudot, they both end up with a suda, but they both also accomplish mishloach manot ish So that's what the other possibility is here. And again, that would reflect on the other tzad of mishloach manot. That the purpose of mishloach manot is to facilitate this suda. That was the other side that we talked about before about what the purpose of mishloach manot is. Number two is that you can be accomplished both mitzvot, that of mishloach manot and suda with the same item. And number three is that you're allowed to exchange your suuda in order to be the mishloach manot. You don't have to have a suuda and then separately mishloach manot. So that's the other possibility as to what's transpiring here that mechal feisudai lehadadi. All right, now one of the more famous stories and lines in Shas: Chazamarava, mechayevinish libsumei bipuraya. Person is required to become intoxicated on Purim. Until a person does not know the difference between cursed be Aman to blessed be Mordechai. Tosafot has a more extensive Lashon that he brings from the Yushalmi, which is Arura Zeresh Brucha Esther, Arurim Kolarishim Bruchim Kolayudim, which is what we actually say after we read the Megillah, that more extensive list. Possibility of some explain that that more extensive list is makes it that once you get drunk, it's hard for you to keep them all in order and to keep it together. And that's the test as to whether you're drunk enough in that instance. Rabba v'Rabbi Zera 
Avdu Sudat Purim Badadi. They came together, they had a Purim together. Ibsum, they became intoxicated. Kam Rabba, Rabba got up, Shachted Rabbi Zera, and he Shachted Rabbi Zera. The Machar Bay Rachme, Rachim. The next day he davened, and he brought him back to life. The Shana, the next year, Amalei, Niti Marv, Navit Sudat Purim Badadi. Rabbi said, we had so much fun last year. Let's, come on, let's have another Sudat together. Amalei, lo b'choshat v'shat amitrachesh nisa. Rabbi Zerah says, I can't count on miracles. Ain't some chemel I'm not coming back again. We're not doing this two years in a row. All right. What did the Gemara just say? What just transpired here? All right. The Pashtuda Gemara is that a person has to become intoxicated on Purim to the point where he can't be discerning between Aruch Haman and Baruch Mordechai. The question is, what's the purpose of the story that is brought afterwards? There are two possibilities as to the purpose of the story. Many of the Rishonim learn that the purpose of the story is to show how drunk you have to get. How drunk do you have to get? You have to get so drunk that Rabbah even shechted Rabbi Zeira. That's how drunk you need to get. The story is an evidence of what the mitzvah is of the Chayavinish Libsumei B'Puraya. On the other hand, the Balamor, the Ran, in the Daf, Gimel Medbet, in the Daf Yarif, quote from the Rabbeinu Ephraim. And this is what the Balamor quotes from the Rabbeinu Ephraim. Quote of the Rabbeinu Ephraim. Now, Uvdo, the Kam Rabo, and Shachte, the Rabbi Zero, the Shana, Amale, Ta'avid. Idchele, Memra, the Rabo. Velayt Hilchato, Kabatei. Velav, Shapir, Dami, the Mevad, Hachi. Why did the Gemara bring the story afterwards? It came to show you that Rabo was wrong. That Chayvinish, the Bsume, Bipuraya, looks what, ha- look what happens when you get drunk. You see, you end up Shechting Rabbi Zero. So the story is, to refute or undermine the statement of Rabbah. That's what Rabbi Ephraim says. Rabbi Ephraim says the story afterwards tells you, no, Rabbah's wrong. Now, the way we have in our story, our story is that we have Amarava, and then we have Rabbah afterwards. The stories with Rabbah and Rabbi Zera. In other Gersot, they're both said by Rabbah, or they're both said by Rabbah, which would make it more powerful that the Balamemra did something which either upholds his position, that's how drunk he got, or the Gemara is making the point that you don't want to get drunk like this because look what happens when you get drunk like this. It brought down the Aloha. It's very interesting. For instance, the Rambam. The Rambam, in formulating the mitzvah of drinking on Purim, you have to contrast it with the mitzvah of drinking on a regular Yom Tov. The Rambam writes that, When a person eats and drinks and rejoices on the regel, a person should not be drawn in by the wine, the laughter, and the lightheadedness. Why? Because when a person gets that way, because when a person does this, it's not real simcha, it's not real happiness, but rather it becomes levity and foolishness. And nobody's commanded to be in that state of frivolity and foolishness. But rather, Allah, Allah simcha sheish ba'avodat yotzer akol. You have to be happy to worship Hashem. Shneamar tachad ashalavat Hashem lokecha b'simcha v'tuv leivav. Ha b'ma'ada. What do you learn from this? Shavodah b'simcha. That you have to do your avodah Hashem in happiness. V'yav shalavodat Hashem lo mitoch schok, v'lo mitoch kalurosh, v'lo mitoch shichrut. You can't worship Hashem when you're intoxicated. So the Rambam gives a very strong statement by Hilchot Yom Tov that getting drunk is inappropriate. Shichrut is antithetical to the whole theme 
and purpose of having Simcha on Yom Tov. Yet, when the Rambam formulates it by Purim, he says, Ketzad Chuvat Sudazu. What is the obligation of the Sudan Purim? Shuchal Basar, Vitakein Sudana. He eats meat and he has a beautiful meal. Kefi Asher Timzayodo. Whatever he can afford. Vishoteyayin. Ad Shishtaker, Viradein Bishrichrut. Says you drink wine until you become intoxicated and then you doze off in your state of intoxication. So first of all, the Rambam clearly differentiates between that which is said by a regular Yom Tov and Purim. By a regular Yom Tov, he completely precludes the possibility of Shichrut. He doesn't even entertain that possibility. Whereas by Purim, he says you get drunk. Now, when he says you get drunk, he has an interesting formulation. But he says you become intoxicated, and then you doze off in your state of intoxication. That's the way the Rambam formulates it. We'll come back and discuss that formulation in a second. The Me'iri and others say that it's clear that Chayavinish Lipsume Puraya can't be taken literally because we know throughout Halacha and throughout the Gemara there's so many statements about the evils of getting drunk. And so it's clear that the Gemara did not mean to become drunk or to reach that point of intoxication. The Beit Yosef in Orachayim and Siman Tafresh Tari Hey quotes, Katuv Chayim. Not that you should become drunk. Getting drunk is completely a There's no greater sin. You should just drink a little more than you normally do. He quotes that from the Orchot Chaim and the Beit Yosef. When it comes to Olocha, this is the way the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, Tafresh Tadi Hey, Sif Bet, he makes no qualifications. He doesn't make any statements. He just says it like the Gemara says it. Then all of a sudden you have the Ramah. Haga. The Ramah says, You don't have to get so drunk. Drink more than normal. Quotes that from the Kolbo. We just saw it in the Beit Yosef from the Chod Chaim. Then he says, And then you'll fall asleep. Because when you're asleep, you can't tell the difference between So the Ramah seems to be quoting the Rambam in the sense that the Rambam said before, you go to sleep. But the Rambam's formulation is slightly different than the Ramah's formulation. The Rambam says that first of all, he'll become intoxicated and then he viradim beishichuto, and he'll fall asleep, or he will become incapacitated because he'll go to sleep during his intoxication. The way the Ramah reads it is that he drinks a little more than normal, and then he goes to sleep. It doesn't correlate between the two of them that the drinking is what causes you to go to sleep. In the Rambam, it's clear the intoxication is what causes you to go to sleep. In the Ramah, it does not sound that way. It sounds like you go to sleep because you want to simulate the effects of intoxication. But it's, what is clear and what the Rambam is probably trying to say is that the evils of shichrut, of being drunk, lead a person to do terrible things. So the only appropriate reaction to intoxication is to go to sleep. That a person should go to sleep and he should not act out in that state of intoxication. Rebbe Olocha, in that Siman Tifra Shirizei, says, how can the Chachamim obligate us to get drunk when the so many places in the Torah Nevi'im it talks about the evils of drinking? Now, 
Because all the miracles throughout the Megillah are with feasts and drinking. That's how Vashti gets taken out from being the queen. And the Mishtot that Esther invites Haman to. So through the yain, he remembers the great miracle. That's a mitzvah, but it's not ma'akev. You don't have to get drunk on Purim. As I say to many of my students, that I will take that responsibility when they get up to Shemaim, that if they did not get drunk on Purim, you can say that Simon told me not to get drunk, and that's why I didn't get drunk. There's no mitzvah, there's no la'akev to get drunk. It's better to be a person that's coherent and giving shevach l'dayah l'shem rather than doing terrible things and the shichut leads to averot instead of the mitzvah. There's no middle ground with regards to getting drunk. It's either completely evil or if a person can handle it, it can be something that's great. But the odds are stacked against that and therefore we recommend highly that people follow the Ramah and only drink in moderation, and then go to sleep, or fall asleep from a little more than Yoter Mili Mudo, in order that it doesn't become a problem. Alright. Now, the Gemara continues here, Amarava, Sudat Purim, Shachla Balayla, Lo The Sudat Purim that a person eats at night on Purim, you're not Yotze, the mitzvah of Suda, my time, because it says in the Gilad, Yemei Mishteh Simcha, days of Mishteh Simcha Ktiv, so it means during the daytime. Over here we have the Rabkano, the Shilto Dezagiris of Meymar. Naga Veloatu Rabbanan. Got late on the day of Purim and the Rabbanan didn't show up to learn. Why didn't they come to learn today in the Beit Midrash? We response to him, Dilma, three day Sudat Purim. Maybe they're busy with their Sudat Purim. Why didn't they eat it last night? Didn't you hear this memory of Rava? When you eat it at night, it's not good enough. So he says to them, Amalei, and here there's a change in the gear, so he's lo shmi'ali, that he didn't hear her, or Amalei in. Uh, okay, good. And now I understand why they're not here. He reviewed it, the memory of Rava from him 40 times. Now he had it in his pocket, it was as if he had acquired it. I mean that now we learned something new that Rav had said. In order to keep it, he reviewed it over and over again so they would always remember that din of Rav with regards to Purim. And we mentioned yesterday with regards to the Ramah's position with eating on the night of Purim that he says even though there's not a mitzvah suda, there is a mitzvah the harbot bisuda to have a little more on the night of Purim. And that I mentioned that my brother might suggested that the Ramah does a lot of these things that make it look more like a Yom Tov Purim. And this is one of those items about eating a little more on the night of Purim. Okay, now the next Mishnayot, this Mishnah, continue what we saw in the previous Mishnah, which is Ain Ben. They have nothing to do with Purim anymore. Purim was the lead-off of this genre of Mishnayot, and now we continue, which is Ain Ben Yom Tov Shabbat, Elo Ochel Nevesh Bilvad. The only difference between Yom Tov and Shabbat is Ochel Nevesh Bilvad. Both Rashi and Tosafot point out that's just not true. There are many other differences between Yom Tov and Shabbat. So in the end, they both suggest that it's not an exclusive list, but rather... This is a list about the Malachot. What is Asur on Shabbat? What is Mutar on Shabbat? And as Atosvot even formulates it this way, anything that is Asur on Yom Tov for sure will be Asur on Shabbat. But here we're just talking about that unique or that narrow part of the difference between Shabbat and Yom Tov about Malachot. Because we know that there's a difference between them. A person who violates Shabbat has Skilah or Karet. 
Someone who violates Yom Tov only gets Malkot. So there are definitely other differences between them. I've mentioned in the past that Rabbi Rosenzweig says that the Mishnah is not after explaining all the differences between Yom Tov and Shabbat. It's giving you the item that helps you to define the nature of the day of Shabbat versus the nature of the day of Yom Tov. Ochel Nefesh tells you so much about the Melachot of Yom Tov and why Melachot wrote on Yom Tov versus the Isurim on Shabbat, the Melachot on Shabbat, tells us about the day of Shabbat. So this is a reflection of the Mahut Yom through this distinction of Ochel Nefesh. So now the Gemara is Middayek from the fact that the Mishnah says there's no difference between Yom Tov and Shabbat, when it comes to items that are not Ochel Nefesh, but preparatory items to make Ochel Nefesh, they're both equal and you're not allowed to do them. For instance, an example of that is you have a knife that's not sharp. Can you sharpen a knife on Yom Tov? So if you say that Machshir Ochel Nefesh are Mutarim, then you can sharpen the knife because that will facilitate your ability to make Ochel Nefesh. On the other hand, if you say just Ochel Nefesh is Mutar, but Machshiri Ochanev Shanat Mutar, then you can't sharpen the knife because you could have done it the day before. So now the Gemara says, Matanita and the Lok Rabbi Yehuda. That makes it that our Mishnah is not like Rabbi Yehuda. The Tanya ain't ben Yom to the Shabbat ela Ochan Nefesh, which is Tanakam here, which is also the author of our Mishnah. Rabbi Yehuda Matir af Machshiri Ochan Nefesh. And Yom Tov not as only as Ochan Nefesh Mutar, but even Machshiri Ochan Nefesh Mutarim. My time at the Tanakama. What's the reasoning behind the Tanakama? I'm a crop. By the pasuk that allows one to have ochel nefesh, it says nefesh hu levado yaselachem. So he learns out of the word who these items ochel nefesh mutar velo machshirav. It's a miut. Who ochel nefesh mutar, but machshirim are not mutar. Rabbi Yehuda, how does Rabbi Yehuda learn it? He learns it out from the word lachem at the end of the pasuk, which says lachem lechol tochechem. Whatever you need, whatever you need means both ochel nefesh and machshiri ochel nefesh. What does the Tanakhama do with the word Lachem? It says, It's mutter to do Melechet Ochel Nefesh on Shabbat for a Jew, not for a non-Jew. It's mutter to do Melechet Ochel Nefesh for a Jew on Yom Tov. It's not mutter to do it for animals on Yom Tov. The Heter Ochel Nefesh is only to facilitate your Suda on Yom Tov. It's not to provide for others. That includes animals and Ovdei Kochavim. V'idach, and what about Rabbi Yehuda? What does he do with the Miut of Hu? So he says, K'tiv hu, k'tiv lachem. Who is a miut? Lachem is a reboy. Kan b'machshirim she'ev shalos otam me'erev yom tov. Kan b'machshirim she'ev shalos otam me'erev yom tov. Even Rabbi Yehuda agrees that there's a distinction in machshiri ochel nefesh. If you have something that you could have taken care of before yom tov, and you didn't do it, that's your problem. But if it's something that happened on yom tov itself, then you have a heter of machshiri ochel nefesh. So the example is, if your knife became dull, before Yom Tov, or got nicked before Yom Tov. That's something you could have taken care of before Yom Tov. If you didn't do it, it's too bad on Yom Tov. On the other hand, if on Yom Tov itself the knife became dull, or the knife became nicked on Yom Tov itself, then you didn't have the option to do it beforehand. So in that case, according to Rabbi Yehuda. So that's the, who is the miyot, only things that you couldn't have done before Yom Tov. Lachem comes to include even over here, there's an important Tosafot. We mentioned it in the Gemara in Beitza when we discussed the issue of how do you know which Mlachot are Mutarim for Ochel Nefesh and which are not. Over here, Tosafot gives a definition or a distinction that we mentioned over there. I'm just going to mention the Tosafot. I'm not going to go into the whole sugya, which as he says, the difference is whether it's an item that gets better by waiting over time or gets worse by waiting over time. 
something that you're indifferent between whether you made it before Yom Tov and on Yom Tov, that is, there's no heterochal nefesh for that. Something that is better when it's fresh and it's done on that day versus if it's done the day before, that is mutar bochal nefesh. And certainly items that are better when they age and you do it earlier, that you certainly can't do on Yom Tov. For instance, cheese, making cheese. Cheese, as it ages, gets better. So certainly you would better to do it before Yom Tov than to do it on Yom Tov itself. It's actually worse if you do it on Yom Tov. There for sure it's not mutar. But the distinction that Tosafot makes here in Ochel Nefesh, or to determine what is mutar and what is not mutar in Malachot for Ochel Nefesh is exactly that. Whether it would be better if you do it today, or we're indifferent whether you do it today or you did it the day before. Or even worse, that it deteriorates if you do it today. It's much better to do it the day before. That's a distinction in Ochel Nefesh. Right, next we have Ein Ben Shabbat, the Yom HaKippurim. El Shezez Dono Bidei Adam, Vezez Dono Bikaret. There's no difference between Shabbat and Yom Kippur except the punishment. The punishment for a violation of Shabbat is skila, which is Bidei Adam. That's done by a Beitin. Whereas for Yom HaKippurim, the violation of Yom Kippur is subject to Karet. And that's done by Dei Shamaim. So that's the difference. Zez don't know the Adam. The violation or a wanton violation of Shabbat is met with a punishment by Beitin, whereas the same by Yom Kippurim is Karet, which is taken care of in Hashemayim. When it comes to paying money, Zev Shavim, they are both equal. What the Gemara is discussing over here is something, a concept called Kamle de Rabimine. That means when a person ends up in a situation in which he's going to lose his life for an Avera that he does, if at the same time that he did this Avera that's going to cause him to lose his life, he also caused monetary loss, we say, He only gets the higher or the more stringent of the punishments, and the other one falls away. The classic example is if a person goes and burns down his friend's house, or he ruins his friend's stuff on Shabbat. So over there he's now in violation of Shabbat, and he's going to get skila for violation of Shabbat. On the other hand, he also just stole from his friend. He caused his friend monetary loss. But because he's going to get skilah for Shabbat, therefore, he will not have to pay the money or reparations to his friend. So what the Gemara is saying here is the fact that the Gemara did not differentiate between Shabbat and Yom Kippur means that both, when you're in violation of Shabbat, you don't have to pay the money. When you're in violation of Yom Kippur, you don't have to pay the money. The Gemara says, Who's the author of our Mishnah? He equated Yom Kippur to Shabbat with regards to payments. If he does something that causes him to get skilah for the violation of Shabbat, then he does not have to repay for the money or the damage that he caused in that process. So too by Yom Kippur, he, has to, he loses his life for violating Yom Kippur. It's a different type of loss of life. It's called karet instead of skilah. He remains, therefore, he's also pator Obviously, there are those that disagree with Nechun Yemenekana and say that it's only true by mitat beitin. It's not true by karet. It's not atom. We have a mission over there. Any person who's chayev karet, the gat malkot, nifteru midei kritatan. Then they are no longer subject to karet. Shnamar, the Pasuk says, that he will, when he is whipped, and when he gets the malkot, he will be ashamed, he will be denigrated in front of you. But achicha le'enecha, keven shalaka, after he gets malkot, harihuke achicha, he becomes like your brother. Divrei Rabbi Hananya ben Gamliel. Amr Rabbi Yochanan. Chalukin alav chaverav al Rabbi Hananya ben Gamliel. 
his peers argue on him. Because they say, no, that even after Makot, there still is a Chiyub Karet. Amarova, Amari Beirav, Tanina, we have a Mishnah. Ein ben Yom HaKippurim l'Shabbat, el-shezez dono bideadam, v'zez dono bihikaret. That the violation or wanton violation of Shabbat results in skila, whereas the violation of Yom Kippur results in karet. Vimita, if you're correct, then both of them have a punishment bideadam. The person who's in violation of Shabbat gets skila and beitin. The person who's in violation of Yom Kippur gets malkot, because malkot eliminate the need for karet. So Rav Nachman Amani, Who's the author of the Mishnah here? It's Rabbi Yitzchaki. Tamar Malkot Leka. He says that there is no Malkot that are given. When someone is Chayev Kareit, they do not get Malkot. The Tanya, Rabbi Yitzchak Omer Chayev Kareitot Bichlalayu. Chayev Kareitot were all included. Velama Yatsad Kareit Bachoto. Why was Achoto singled out? Odona Bikareit Veloma Malkot. To tell you that she only gets Kareit and not Malkot at all. The way Rashi learns it is that there's a general statement by all the Arayot which says that anybody who does any of these Arayot is going to get Karet. Then again by Achoto it specifies Karet by Achoto. Why does it need to specify it? It already told you that everything in the Arayot Parsha gets Karet. The answer is that you get only Karet. Exclusively Karet. And here we invoke the principle as anything that leaves the general principle it's not just to teach about itself, but to teach about the general principle entirely. That teaches that all the arayot, you get karet and no malkot. That's the limud according to Rashi of Rabbi Yitzchak. Tosafot rejects that and says that's not the limud over here, but rather the limud over here is that by achoto, it's missing a lav. There is no lautase by achoto, only the punishment of karet, and that teaches there's only karet and no lav. The reason that this comes out is that every punishment in the Torah requires an azhara. An azhara means a lav. That's to tell you someone in the Torah, you're not allowed to do it. And if you do, or you violate that, then you get this punishment. So, for instance, by any chiyuv mita beitin. A chiyuv mita beitin is a lav that says, don't do this. And if you do it, you're going to get punished with a mita in beitin. So that's what we call lav hanitan azharat mitat beitin. It's a lota said that leads to a much heavier punishment. In that case, the Gemara says you don't get malkot for the lav. Because the lav is a warning to tell you, don't do this, because if you do it, you'll get this punishment. It's not coming to be a standalone lotase. Standalone lotase, don't do this. And if you do it, you're going to get malkot. That doesn't apply here because it's really just a warning to tell you what the ultimate or greater punishment will be. The question is, by karate, do we say the same thing? The lav by karate, when you have a lotase by karate, do we say the lotase is just warning you don't do this, because if you do this, you'll end up with karate? Or... Is by karet, it's different. The lotase stands independent of the karet, meaning that there's a lotase and you can get malkot for it. Plus, if you don't get malkot, you can end up with karet. And that's the machlokot here. Rabbi Yitzchak says, no malkot. There's only karet over here. The lav doesn't count. On the other hand, there are those that disagree and say, no, that the lav does count. You will get malkot. And if you do get malkot, it will eliminate the need for karet afterwards. Ravashi Amar, Filu Tamer Rabbonon, even the Rabbonon can be the author of this position. So even the Rabbanan that argue on Rabbi Hananiah bin Gamliel and who say that if you get Malkot, there is no Karet, they still, you can make the statement of our Mishnah, which is the primary punishment for Shabbat is Adam. The primary punishment for the violation of Yom Kippur is Karet. Now, you have a waiver or you have an option by which if you get Malkot, then you'll no longer need Karet. But that's only like a tashlumim type of idea. It's not the primary. The primary question is karet. It happens to be that you get a dispensation or a waiver if you get malkot. 
So you could still make the statement of the Mishnah even if you don't believe that Karet stands without any Malkot. So here we have two answers of how we can have the Rabbonin be the authors of the Mishnah, either Rabbonin, meaning that it's Rabbi Yitzchak, or Rabbonin, even the, the Rabbonin themselves could be the author of the Mishnah because the distinction between Bidei Adam and Bidei Shemaim still exists at the primary punishment level. Okay, we'll stop over here.